Welcome to Travels in a Mathematical World, a podcast from the Institute of Mathematics and its Applications, the IMA. This is episode 19. 19 is the smallest number, n, such that n to the n is pan-digital, which means it contains all ten digits. The smallest number. My name is Peter Rolls. I'm here at the University of Nottingham with Sarah Shepherd, uh, who is a PhD student here and also edits I Squared magazine, a popular maths magazine. And this week on the podcast, we're going to talk over some maths news. Uh, my first article is from the BBC News website. Um, it says that scientists have developed a mathematical model which shows that emperor penguins are heading for extinction. Hal Caswell and his colleagues from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute used a population dynamics model to describe the mating patterns and the breeding success of the penguins. Now, emperor penguins are the largest species of penguins, and they're unique because they breed during the harsh Antarctic winters. They make long treks across the ice to lay their eggs, which means that the extent of the sea ice affects their breeding success, as well as the abundance of their food sources. The researchers used projections of sea ice coverage from a recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and they ran 1,000 simulations of penguin population dynamics under a number of different scenarios which were presented by the IPCC report. Their results suggest that the number of penguins in the Antarctic will fall by 95% by the year 2100, and they calculated that this would happen with at least a 1 in 3 chance. It is possible that the penguin could shift their breeding patterns with the climate and thus prevent disaster, but the study's lead author said, unlike some Antarctic bird species that have altered their life cycles, penguins don't catch on so quickly. They're long-lived organisms, so they adapt slowly. And this is a problem because the climate is changing very fast. Dan Ruman, a population biologist at Imperial College London, said, I don't see any reason not to take these predictions very seriously. The study is based on a wide range of climate forecasts. It takes a conservative approach. It's based on a large amount of data on penguin demography and the model accurately forecasts the data that already exist. Okay. Right. I have a piece from The Telegraph, um, which is actually from January, but I missed it in January. Um, a chap called Graham Parker has finally solved his Rubik's Cube after 26 years' worth of attempts. Uh, he bought it in 1983 and has just now solved it. But I quite like this because it's, he, know, he says he knows that there are solutions available on the web and people have offered to solve it for him but he just had to do it himself um, the quote I've got is I cannot tell you what a relief it was to finally solve it it has driven me mad over the years it, I felt like it has taken over my life and he says when I clicked that last bit into place and each face was a solid colour I wept <laughs> which I think is lovely because that's marvellous effort over, over many years um, how old is this guy? Um, 45 from Portchester, Hampshire, and the uh, the Telegraph refers to his long-suffering wife. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know he was, had a Rubik's cube when you married him? <laughs> I'm not sure if they were married before he started. It does say it's frequently put a strain on their marriage, causing blazing rows between the pair. <laughs> right, this is from the the Western Mail through WalesOnline.co.uk. 
Uh, there's a mathematics professor at Swansea University called David Williams um, who had to have an operation to remove a tumour, brain tumour. And he was warned that the operation may destroy his mathematics ability. And in fact, before he went in for the operation, they made him sign a clause to say his maths ability might be ruined by the operation, and that he understood that. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't, and he came out of the operation and solved a problem he'd been working on for years and hadn't been able to solve. <laughs> he says, I solved the problem after the tumour. I could not solve it before. It became much clearer to me after the operation. I had had the tumour for a long time. The pressure of it had been hampering my maths, and when that was removed, things were better. But the downside is his ability to play the piano has been lost. Because he, he tried playing and he can't coordinate his hands in the same way that he used to. So he's incredibly upset at having yeah, lost that ability. That's quite sad. The Western Mail quotes him, he says, his love for mathematics is, quote, like watching the famous mat match between the barbarians and the all blacks. Everyone who saw that game was carried away with the excitement, but it does not compare with the excitement of mathematics. Uh, so I found an article which was on BBC News website and in The Guardian, which says that it's been announced that Carol Vorderman is the head of maths task force set up by the Conservative leader, David Cameron. The former Countdown host will try to tackle the problems of poor numeracy among schoolchildren and the negative cultural attitude to maths in the UK. In her new role, she'll visit schools and she'll hold discussions with parents and experts in math education. But this announcement has come as a surprise to some people because Vorderman recently took part in a government commissioned report on math teaching and she endorsed its recommendations. Harold Vorderman says, Math is critically important to the future of this country, but Britain is falling behind the best performing countries. In the last decade, 3.5 million children have left school without a basic qualification in maths, a shocking statistic. If they are to get the best jobs in the future and Britain is to emerge stronger from the recession, we have little choice but to sort math out now. And she also said, Math is my passion and there is no question that Britain has developed a fear of the subject and it is time to break that cycle. Uh, yeah, I saw the piece on the Guardian website. It's an interesting thing, this, but it's... It's, it's what they're saying is quite good, but it's worryingly party political. Uh, I did see an opinion piece on the Guardian website the next day on what's called their mortarboard blog, um, entitled, If Vorderman is the answer, Cameron's asking the wrong question. Um, <laughs> which wonders, well, it asks whether she is qualified to look at teaching methods, um, because she, she's a strong popular figure for mathematics, actually numeracy, but doesn't necessarily have any sort of teaching yeah. qualifications. And it also asks, this piece, whether looking at teaching methods is really getting to the solution. So Janet Murray, who writes the blog post, says, It is easy to say maths teaching isn't up to scratch, that standards are falling or exams are getting easier. Far more challenging is addressing the issue of how to persuade suitably qualified professionals to teach maths. A conundrum even Vorderman can't solve. <laughs> the other thing I saw was there was an interview with, um, with Carol Vorderman in The Times. The Times says, after more than a quarter of a century adding up and taking away on television, she is surely the nation's best-known human abacus. Indeed, this is why she's just been appointed Math Czar by David Cameron. And the article goes on to repeatedly call her Math Czar, as though that <laughs> means something. 
Um, I also keep seeing her described as a mathematician, and I think from what I hear, she's the first to admit that she isn't. Uh, she did an engineering degree, and what she does is numeracy, which is yeah, very interesting. I think that's the point, is that she's, she's sort of giving the impression that math is all about counting and adding up, and that's yes. really not what it's about. So I have a quote from an inter- there was an interview with Marcus Asorto in The Independent, which touches on a few different issues, and one that I've picked out is, he says, a good mathematician is not necessarily someone who is fast at their multiplication tables. The emphasis on arithmetic is mistaken. If you want to inspire kids, you have to help them explore math's creative side. And I think what's interesting about this is, on the one hand, you have the, the popular view of mathematics as being being able to add up and really quickly, or whatever it is. And then on the other side, you have Marcus, who does a lot of work in, in creative in, in theatre. We talked about A Disappearing Number last time, the play which yeah. he was involved in. And in trying to get the creative side of mathematics out there. So Carol says, I'm in a unique position to do this. I've never claimed to be the world's greatest mathematician. I'm a competent mathematician to a certain level, but I love it. And... In the interview in The Times, she also talks about Countdown and about being a celebrity. Um, the upshot of it is she wants parents and pupils to email her at carol at mathstaskforce.com with their questions, complaints and observations about how they are taught maths. So I mentioned there an interview with Marcus Asorte in The Independent. Um, one of the other issues that I picked out, one of the other quotes I picked out that he, he mentions in that is a current issue with government funding of research projects. Um, so research projects are often funded through the government research councils, which are more and more concerned, it would seem, with immediate outcomes and with putting together researchers from different disciplines who can create something that's useful to business now. And there's a bit of a concern that pure mathematics is going to really suffer under this regime because the applications may not be immediately apparent. And if you look at things like the computer revolution and credit card encryption and all this, this all comes from mathematics that's hundreds, hundred or more years old that didn't have an application at the time. And the worry, I think, is that that sort of thing might not get funded now. And so how's yeah. that going to affect us long term? So the quote I have from Marcus is, governments are very orientated towards short-term goals, giving grants to research that has an immediate application. That's dangerous. Time and again, mathematical breakthroughs are made which looked to be abstract and useless at the time, but turned out to be exactly what's needed. Now, um, February the 12th marked the 200th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birth. Darwin was known to dislike mathematics, but an article in the American magazine Science News explains that he actually inadvertently contributed to the development of statistics. Darwin was carrying out some experiments on the cross-fertilisation of plants and he found that the hybrids were much bigger and stronger than the plants that were purebred. He wanted to find out whether the differences that he'd observed between the purebred and the hybrid plant could be simply, down to random, could be simply put down to random variation. He consulted his cousin, Francis Galton, who had recently invented the standard deviation Galton calculated the standard deviations of the plant height, but he wasn't able to use this number to calculate whether the height differences were actually random. Forty years later, the Guinness employee William Seeley Gosset developed the student's t-test, which enabled him, using the standard deviation calculated by Galton, to show that there was a 1 in 20 chance 
that the difference in height between the hybrids and the purebreds was random. Now this chance is significant, but it's only just. So another 10 years later, the statistician Sir Ronald Elmer Fisher learned about Darwin's work on evolution and he started studying the same problem. He realised that although Darwin has cleverly planted the seeds in pairs with one cross-pollinated and one self-pollinated seed in each pot, Galton had just calculated the standard deviation of all the plants put together. Fisher found that when he calculated the standard deviation of the plants in pairs, the probability that the height differences were due to random variation went down to just 1 in 10,000, which showed that it was almost certainly the case that the hybrids really did grow taller than the purebred plants. And it was thanks to Darwin's excellent experimental design that Fisher was able to make this discovery. According to David Brillinger, a statistician at the University of California, Berkeley, Darwin was a leader in a subfield of statistics called experimental design. He knew how to design a good experiment, but what to do with the numbers was something else. There will be events taking place throughout this year to celebrate the anniversary of Darwin's birth, including a festival at Cambridge University, an exhibition at the National History Museum, and the opening of, Ke- of Darwin's Kent home to the public. It's also, I think, I believe it's also the anniversary of the public, the 150th anniversary of the Origin of Species publication. I think he published it when he was 50, so it's a sort of oh, okay. dual anniversary this year. I was in Plymouth the other week, and I don't know if the Beagle sailed from Plymouth or something, but there was a lot going on there in, in, in the museums that I walked past. It's a good story, the, uh, the student tea test, because it's, it's the chap who works for Guinness, and he wants to find a better way to brew the beer. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful, because it's, a, it's a, a mathematical development coming out of the application. It's this, this area of statistics grows up from needing to be rigorous about how you're trying different brand, different types of beer, different ingredients. And yeah, but so he, he wasn't actually allowed to publish his work under his own name because he was working for Guinness. Yeah, and he chose student as a... Yeah. Yes. Which can be confusing, I think, when you first hear it. Student t-test, it's for students. <laughs> but student was his pseudonym. <laughs> right, I saw a, a column in The Independent by Boyd Tonkin, um, which I, I sort of read through, and it, it manages to touch on a lot of current issues in, in maths and science, I think. So, including the, the two Darwin anniversaries this year. It also draws on the work of Marcus de Soto on primes and the Riemann hypothesis using football shirts, uh, and a current football transfer story. Uh, Marcus' appointment as Oxford Professor of the Public Understanding of Science, Carol Vorderman's appointment to the Conservative Initiative on Maths Education, the play A Disappearing Number, the two Darwin anniversaries and bridge building between the arts and mathematics, all of which seem to be coming up time and again. Uh, I've picked it out because I like the quote on the Riemann hypothesis. He says, A true tabloid operator could concoct a story claiming that the resolution of Riemann would destroy the RSA encryption that now safeguards all your internet transactions. From computers to credit cards, high-end mathematical theory powers modern life. So there's been a lot of Marcus Soto on the podcast this week. One thing that I like that he does is he always tries to find a current event and tag some mathematics onto it. And I've seen him talk on, on public engagement through the media with, with mathematics and he, he freely admits to doing this, that he deliberately looks for situations where he can pitch to an editor of a newspaper something based on current events. And uh, so I was quite delighted to see on, uh, on February the 4th, Marcus wrote a column for the Times which asked the question, why do snowflakes have six arms? And if you remember, there was a lot of snow at the start of February. 
Um, it, covers, it goes from Kepler and symmetry to crystal structures and fractals. The quote I picked out is, so although your kids may be off school, don't despair. There is still some great maths you can pack into the snowballs flying through the air. So as we record it, the current edition of Marcus's sexy maths columns in the, column in the Times is on Palladio's proportions, uh, which is the proportions of an A4 piece of paper, which are arranged so that if you half the, pa half the paper going from A4 to A5, the resulting proportions are precisely the same, and that no other proportion has this property. In the column, Marcus discusses this, its use in architecture. Do you know, do you know Twitter? Do you know I know of it, yeah. Yeah, that's taken up a lot just now. I noticed. I was in the newspapers, they're always going on about it. Yeah, well, I've, I've been hearing about it for like a year, and I'm wondering... So Plus have started doing Twitter. Have they? Yeah. It's a, I I'm not quite sure, you just... It's short messages, 140 characters, yeah. on what you're doing right now. Yeah. Frequently but, updated. But, but, well, I mean... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, I guess. I guess it's a good idea, but... It's just sort of another thing for someone like me to do on top of everything else. Like That's what I think. So I, I've been thinking about it for it, because I've been hearing about it for about a year, and I think, should I do it? And should I sign up to that and start doing it? And would that be interesting for people? And then I think it's an enormous amount of vanity. And But then I'm, I don't know, I might do it. So I signed up to Twitter to follow a few people and see what they do. Um, the thing is, it gets a bit much, doesn't it, if you've got like a... A podcast, a blog, a Facebook page, yeah. you know, yeah. how much more... And it depends <laughs> what you're doing, because, like, in February, I've been to Plymouth, Bristol, Greenwich University and Brunel University in London, then Cardiff the next day, and then the last week of February I'm in Scotland, and I'm doing Aberdeen, St Andrews, Strathclyde in Glasgow... Edinburgh University, Harriet Watt University. So I'm doing a lot of going around, and then suddenly it'll be, in a, in a month or so, it'll be the Easter holidays, and I'll do very little. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure whether it's... Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I have to have a think about it. I suspect I, I might end up doing it. It, it, it. I feel drawn to it somehow, but I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> Stephen Fry does it. That's right, Stephen Fry, famously. He seems to be the, the market leader. <laughs> that sort of thing. I'm following him to see what happens. So as always, I recommend um, people read Plus magazine, um, plus.maths.org. The piece on the Plus news page this time draws out several articles from their archive uh, to bring out um, some Valentine's-themed stories for February. In mathematics today this time, apart from a picture of me, <laughs> there's some news from student maths arts. Uh, there's, a, there's an article by Shazia Hussein of the University of Manchester, uh, who reports on a Galois group lecture um, given on mathematics and philosophy. There's a piece on the mathematics of forming leaves, and there's an article on mathematics and astronomy. 2009 marks the 400-year anniversary of the publication of Kepler's treatise on astronomy and 200 years of that of Gauss. And this article goes through uh, the work of both and the impact it's had on, on astronomy. Right, so Sarah edits I Squared magazine. I recommend you all go and check it out at www.isquaredmagazine.co.uk. You can find out more about my work at the IMA by going to www.ima.org.uk slash student. Links to everything that we've talked about today will be on the show notes for the blog. Uh, you can find out more about the podcast and read show notes from episodes and download all the previous episodes.
And please send everyone you know to www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk. Thank you for listening. As a little after show note, I have decided to start Twittering. Whew. Not sure if it's a good idea or not, but I'll give it a go and see how it goes. I'll put a link to my page on Twitter on the website for the podcast at www.travelsinamathematicalworld.co.uk.